welcome all. It is a unusual Thursday special. night, special Thursday night. We used to night. do Thursday night generational change. Yeah, so it's Thursday night's generational change. I'm Jen. I'm Peter, and we used to do it at 8 o'clock on Thursdays, but now we're here at 7 o'clock. Why are we here at 7 o'clock, Jen? We're trying to accommodate people. Yeah, we're we trying really to be are. very accommodating. And then when you end up becoming too accommodating, what do they do? They kind of walk all over you, but that's mm. okay. We're hoping that's not going to happen because we're hoping that this happens. But in the meantime, there were things you wanted to talk about. Yeah, uh, for those of you who have probably been paying attention, Lord knows it's made the rounds on a few channels, including our good friend Mike Figueredo's of the Humanist Report. Uh, yeah, our congresswoman just can't seem to get out of her own way, and that is probably either by complete naivete, uh, intentionality, or whatever you want to call it. Well, she's on the payroll. Yes, in fact, she is, uh, whether it's APAC exactly. or, or any of these organizations. And she needs to, and she really needs show to suck her up loyalty. to them. She God, does, because she angered them by signing the um, voting for the Iran deal. Mm. So she lives to suckle at the teat up to APAC. And this was definitely up their alley. Oh, so. it certainly was. And so, of course, she decided to come after one of her fellow congressional members in her party, Rashida Tlaib. Uh, I remember mentioning not too long ago how Debbie was trying to suck up to the squad and look like she actually can't. Yeah, well, when push comes to shove. Well, she does refer to herself as progressive. Like, she, she claims to, like, have an idea of progressive value. That word is going to be completely values. decimated. It is already. Like, already, I can't so, even. Yeah. Just say non-corporate. That solves the problem. Well, that'll us. eliminate her from the conversation. Yeah, well, then there's, there's just no way. <laughs> they'll be like, hey, there's no such thing. Hey, we're all corporate here. Uh, but, yeah, so Debbie decided to stick her neck out and say what an anti-Semite Rashida Tlaib is for suggesting that you can't call yourself a progressive and endorse the Israeli government's bombings of Gaza no, and Palestinians. No, be specific. This is very nuanced. This is okay. why I said what she said was, is that people with progressive values don't support apartheid states. That's basically the, the extent of it. And she is correct. We do not. And, um, you know, of course, Debbie and others, but Debbie's always quick to it, have to jump on the, the accusations of anti-Semitism. You know, to Debbie, everything is anti-Semitic. So in, the, in, in that vein, I would like to say that we are planning um, a very good series. It's going to be called Deconstructing Zionism. And I'm putting together, it's going to be four different panels that will occur. So we're going to do like a three-hour live stream. And we're going to talk about everything from history. We are going to talk about how APAC's affecting politics. We're going to talk about um, Black liberation movement and support of Palestinian rights. So we're going to have a few different panels on it. But this is a lot more complex. And people like Debbie just are very quick to call the anti-Semite card for a few reasons. It rallies their people. OK, but but more than that, she probably really believes it to some extent. Um, she was raised probably similar to how I was raised and probably has yet to deprogram, if at all. And so that is part partially why we are going to be doing our Deconstructing Zionism series. Um, well, it's not really a series. It's an event. It's an event. It's four panels. Um, and guests are going to be a very wide range of people, but people that really understand this subject matter and topic. And I am going to put things out there once and for all because I am really tired of people like Debbie coming from a different set of facts. Like we can have different opinions, but we have to come from the same set of facts. And she does not, um, as neither do a lot of the people that talk about this as being anti-Semitic. They're not coming well, again, at this like from you facts. said, a lot of it, unfortunately, just has to do 
significantly with the corporate special interest money that is in politics, particularly for the pro-Israel, anti-Palestinian lobby. And that is led by APAC, but there's a lot of other organizations. Well, you've got Democratic Majority for Israel and and quite honestly, the Anti-Defamation League and a lot of these organizations. Mr. Anti-Defamation League, Jonathan Greenblatt coming out and basically being a a cheerleader for our congresswoman. The the conflation of Judaism and Zionism has been done very purposefully over many years of propaganda. And we are going to be talking about that at length, which is one of the reasons I'm doing this panel. I am so fed up with the conflation of those two things. They are not the same thing. Therefore, if somebody does not support Zionism, by definition, they are not necessarily an anti-Semite because they're completely different things. So I'm tired of that. And um, so I'm, I'm taking the narrative back. I am tired of being on the defense when I have the moral high ground. So we are going to be hitting it straight on. We are looking at Saturday, October 15th as the date in order to do this panel, Saturday afternoon. And it's a uh, lot of people involved, so it's going to be like a lot of coordinating. This is so- going to be a little old school throwback <laughs> as it was with the Assange Telethon. Uh, Katie Halper will be involved. Uh, to what Katie Halper is going to be on one of our panels. Okay, so she's not going to co-host. No, okay. you are. Oh, great. I have to do it. <laughs> Year, year. Uh, No, she's going to be one of the panels (laughs) and probably particularly the one that addresses how media um, presents Israel and Palestinian issues in different places and particularly how propagandized it is here. So, yeah. Well, we are certainly looking forward to that panel, but the panel we're really looking forward to is the (laughs) one we are about to have. And yes, we do have our guests here this evening. Very exciting. It took long enough, but... We know that life in uh, politics can be very busy and schedules can change and fluctuate, but we made it happen. And uh, couldn't happen on a better day. Obviously, right now, it looks like the son of the Vermont is doing work with the GOP to stop Joe Manchin from having more coal being done in Bristol. Oh. So we'll have a lot to talk about that and obviously about nuclear power and all different things regarding how we're going to be moving forward regarding clean energy because things are getting pretty rough out there, like they are down here in South Florida. So without further ado, we are pleased to welcome our two guests of the evening. The first guest we are going to bring into the studio, you know him from Obviously Rising. And of course, he is the chief editor of The Intercept in Washington, D.C., the Washington, D.C. Bureau, as they like to say. Friend of the show, we know him, we love him. He's always welcome when he's available. Ryan Grimm, welcome back to Generational Change. Hey, sorry I couldn't make it last time or the last two times. No, but I'm glad to be here. Um, Thank you for coming. It's really good to have you. And we also have another guest. He is the former independent gubernatorial candidate in California and a staunch advocate for nuclear power as a means to getting us to a clean energy grid in the hopefully near future. Michael Schellenberger, welcome back to Generational Change. Hey, guys. Hey. Okay, we finally have it happening. We're finally all here. It's really good. And um, this has been a huge uh, point of contention on all sides. And I think a lot of it is what I think about a lot of things, which we're not coming at it from the same set of facts. So like we should definitely like establish what like what we are talking about in terms of um, nuclear and what that would entail and what that would mean. We, you know, just be specific. Oh, you're changing that now. Yeah. Okay. All right, whatever. <laughs> so, so it's <laughs> distracting. So you guys obviously got into a conversation online, and there is no way to ever settle a dispute on Twitter. It is not possible. I don't care who you are. I think it is much more productive to have a 
free-flowing conversation. There has been a considerable amount of interest regarding what it's going to take to get off of coal and natural gas. There is no clear-cut answer in terms of the immediacy. We are both huge advocates for the idea of a World War II FDR-style uh, clean energy grid build out, which could be done probably within a few years if need be. Uh, we're not counting on President Biden to do that, but you know, we certainly can hope and pray. But with that said, obviously, nuclear is a huge talking point and it's a huge point of contention that not everybody right. is too familiar with. So, Michael, I want to give you the opportunity to start, obviously, to share your thoughts as to why you believe nuclear has to be included in the clean energy future that we seek. Sure. And you know, I thought it might be helpful for me just to say kind of my broader, explain some of my broader view of energy and climate and how to think about it. Um, I wrote a book on this. I've been working on energy and climate since the late 90s. I was an advocate of renewables in the early 2000s. I helped persuade uh, President Obama's then campaign team in 2007 to make a big investment in renewables. I then had... Um, we basically, I defended Cape Wind, which was a big proposed wind farm off the coast of Cape Cod. But I started encountering more concerns around renewables, particularly conservation at the time. The land use impacts are very large. It takes three to three or 600 times more land to generate the same amount of electricity from solar or wind as it does from a natural gas or a nuclear plant. And around 2010, between 2007 and 2010, I basically changed my mind about nuclear. I came to see it as necessary for dealing with climate change as, uh, as a good technology, a mostly benign technology. I overcame a bunch of my concerns around the accidents. I was 14 when Chernobyl happened. It scared the daylights out of me. When I was a kid, my sister told me that they had built a nuclear plant on an earthquake fault in California and that and the picture in my mind was of a mushroom cloud. So I'm a child of the 80s. Um, but the more I learned about nuclear, the more I realized that nuclear power plants are not the same as nuclear weapons and that it produces um, effectively zero air and water pollution with tiny amounts of waste that can be stored at the site of production, which is what environmentalists should want. When the fracking revolution began in, 20, in 2011, I led a research project into how we developed fracking technologies and discovered that there was uh, federal government support for fracking and, and underground mapping and directional drilling going back to the 70s. And basically in that process came to believe that natural gas was superior <coughs> to coal on every environmental metric and became a supporter of gas when it replaces coal and I think that that support is borne out by what's occurred. We've seen, we saw carbon emissions in the United States decline by 22% between the year 2005 and the year 2020. 61% of that decline was due from the switch from coal to natural gas. The rest of the other 39% was 31% from wind and 8% from solar. And that was only enabled by cheap natural gas that could then ramp up when the sun goes down ramp down when the sun is shining, the wind is blowing. Um, so I've been a supporter of natural gas and nuclear for you know almost 12 years. Um, but my view is pretty clear, which is that I'm in support of, I believe in energy tra tra transition. So if you're using wood and dung, you're in India or sub-Saharan Africa, then you have a right to use anything you want, hydroelectric, electricity, coal. In Apocalypse Never, I defend this view um, and defend hydroelectric dams. I'm not anti-renewables per se. 
My concern with uh, solar and wind are really environmental and economic concerns. I'm concerned about the solar panels are basically all being manufactured by incarcerated Uyghur Muslims in China. I don't think we can keep importing those solar panels. Um, I do strongly support reshoring solar panel production to the United States, but I do not think we can, with good conscience, import solar panels from China. I'm also very concerned, and this is to get to the point of contention with Ryan and me, I'm very concerned about the material intensity of, of solar and wind. And I'm excluding hydro from that because hydro tends to be in a class of its own. But solar and wind require a significant increase in copper, rare earths, other materials in addition to land use. And the reason for that is because sunlight and wind are energy dilute fuels, so to speak, they're energy dilute flows. And generally energy transitions occur from energy dilute to energy dense fuels. So we go from wood to coal to oil to natural gas to uranium. I think that's a benevolent uh, process of, of environmental progress. I'll close by saying I think we're in the worst energy crisis in 50 years. We need a lot more oil and gas. If we don't produce it in the United States, then we're going to do what Biden has been doing, which is to beg the Saudis, beg the Venezuelans to produce that oil. They're not willing to do that necessarily. Um, to some extent, they are, but I think it's better to produce it here. I think that the transition away from gas is a very long one. I think it'll take at least a half a century, if not more than a century, um, Ryan pointed out that I miscalculated some of my numbers on natural gas reserves. It doesn't really change the ultimate thing, the ultimate issue, because I've always thought that we needed to move away from natural gas to nuclear within this century. I think the best way to move to nuclear is with a green nuclear deal, which is with a standardized uh, design, uh, probably a large light water plant design that we just standardize and that the U.S. government provides the right uh, incentives for the utilities to deploy. So that's basically my view. I don't know if Ryan and I disagree. Um, I think he was interpreting what I was saying as saying that we should never get off of fossil fuels, which is just not my view. It's not, it's never been my view. My views have been laid out and on my Substack pieces and on my book, Apocalypse Never. And it's basically that one. It's a, it's a transition from, from energy dilute to energy dense fuels. Okay, so Ryan, what what do you make of that? Like, where do you like where do you differ? Where do you think that the problem is with that? Right, and so yeah, let me be clear that I'm by no means an energy expert. Uh, I'm I'm much better at just asking questions about this stuff. Uh, and so, the question that I have about nuclear and the, the is the is the scale up, like it like aside from the you know aside from the concerns around the waste and those other things that. You, know, you could conceivably find some solution to. There seem to be two problems, and I'll, I'll lay them both out for you, and I'm curious for your take on them. One is uranium or other other raw materials. I guess I understand that there's some hope that we'll be able to do, you know, that we'll be able to create next generation nuclear power plants relying on kind of spent fuel or old waste or, uh, you know, other things that have been used in the past. But in general, if if we're relying on uranium for it and if we're depleting our our stores of uranium then it seems like it has the same problem as some of the the renewables where where you're running out of the things that you need to to produce it so that's the one question then the second question would be in order to power the globe uh i think you would need an order of what 2000 or so you know new nuclear power plants around the world 
And you know, we have we're we're building right now what four or something like the entire world is building oh. like fewer no fewer not the entire world yeah not, like um, a handful like a a, a, ti- a tiny handful and so not enough and you and you would also have to build them basically everywhere and unless unless kind of nuclear power has evolved in a way since the the 70s 80s 90s in in a significant enough way you need governments that not just can subsidize as as you said uh, the creation of these power plants but they also have to be able to kind of regulate and inspect the power plants you know well the 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 key thing you know they do all of these cultural surveys inside these power plants like you know do you feel like they're asking the employees all the time do you feel like you're working in an environment where if you see some type of safety concern you're you can bring that concern forward and it will be dealt with you know by management uh because if it's not uh you know you could have you know catastrophic problems at these plants and so when when you spin the globe and stop it and point at countries all over the planet you don't land on a whole lot of them where you're confident that they would be able to effectively kind of build and regulate a nuclear power plant at the scale that we would need to do it at the speed that we would need to do it. So that those are my concerns, but I'm, so I'm curious on those two points, what your take is. Sure. Yeah. So um, let's take the waste and fuel issue because they're basically, they're basically two ends of the same issue. So, so, you know, the great thing about nuclear is that this amount of uranium can give me all the power I need for my entire life. This amount of uranium fuel as a fuel solid fuel rod, it goes through the fissioning process and it comes out the other side and it looks exactly the same. It's tiny, tiny less mass because there's been fission that's released a tiny amount of mass. And then that's the waste. And as an environmentalist, for me, it's solved. It's the best solution because the waste is actually stored at the site of production. All of the nuclear waste produced in the United States over the last 50 years can fit on a single football field stacked 50 feet high there's no other form of energy production or any other production which internalizes its waste byproduct in the same way. Now you get to the issue of fuel, um, and I'm working on a new book about nuclear right now, but basically there hasn't really been any serious concern within the scientific um, or mining communities about uranium supplies since the late 40s, meaning that really we've known we've had abundant uranium reserves, just to give you a sense of it, the Canadian, it's really been the opposite problem for the uranium mining industry. They haven't had enough demand for their product, and so they've ended up shutting down a bunch of mines. But even if you were to, um, you know, like thousands of years from now, run out of uranium, um, we know you can extract uranium from the seawater. They've proven this. We don't know that it's super cost effective now, but you can certainly do it. And it's interesting that um, Saudi Arabia has actually started a project with China to extract uranium from the seawater. But this gets to the waste issue, which is that the current light, the current generation of technology we have only uses about 5% of the energy in this fuel process. And so the vision was always that that waste would be recycled. France does that in, these, in this really big facility. It's like a mile long. It can take all the old the used waste and it recycles it. We have enough fuel in our existing waste to power our nuclear plants for a thousand years. And you might be skeptical because that's the number I gave for the, for the natural gas. Um, but uh, but uh, don't take my word for any of it. You can We can check it out and we can look at it later, but it's plenty of, uh, of you for, for recycling. So that's the, 
That's called the, the fuel cycle. And what happened in the 60s and 70s is that we abandoned the process of recycling uranium for basically two reasons. One was we just had abundant uranium and it's cheap just to kind of, it's cheaper for almost all materials to just use them fresh from mines and then process them rather than to recycle them. But the other is that there was fears about the plutonium that's created in the process of recycling the, the waste. And that gets to your other issue, which is that nuclear energy is obviously a dual use technology. Every nuclear reactor in the world could be retrofitted to produce uranium, I'm sorry, plutonium. And in fact, plutonium is produced in existing nuclear power plants, but you just they can't go in there and get the plutonium when it's in the in the process of transmutation from uranium to plutonium because it's too radioactive. But it, you can look into the you can look in there and see that it's turning into plutonium. Um, so so yeah, so nuclear is a dual use technology, and so that's led a bunch of people to just feel like we want to get rid of it. The reason that we never were able to is because they and the political scientists figured this out is that. Um, even if two nuclear armed countries got rid of their nuclear weapons, like the United States and the Soviet Union, if they would go to war, they would instantly reconstruct their weapons. And everyone figured that out right away. So we've so basically, except for a very small number of, of fairly marginal people, I'm not saying that in an insulting way, but just a very small number of people think you can actually get rid of nuclear weapons. So instead, we have this uh, United Nations governed International Atomic Energy Agency which inspects every facility in the world. I went and visited a, a nuclear waste facility in the Netherlands and there were cameras everywhere. So they're actually filming and it goes right to Vienna, which is where the IAE is located. So Ryan, you're definitely correct that you have to have a regime in place to monitor this. So one issue is like, what if- um, But not just for weapons, but for safety too, right? I mean, go ahead. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so okay, well, on the safety issue, it's it's a different regime. It's a national regulatory body in the United States. It's the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. On that, I felt very I have, and it's good to have concerns about it. And I can't, I don't want to make anybody, I can't resolve your concerns um, on this uh, conversation. But for me, what I did is I just went and talked to people at nuclear plants when they weren't at the plant, <laughs> um, and was like, "How do you know that it's safe?" You know. Um, and I got to know some of the plant workers, including people I really respect. Two of them uh, started a group called Mothers for Nuclear, one of whom went into working at the plant, imagining she'd be an Aaron Brockovich type who would kind of expose the plant for being dangerous. And she ended up changing her mind. She's very progressive. Her name is Heather Hoff. She'd be a great guest for you guys, Jen. Um, Mothers for Nuclear. Um, these are two. These are the two women that started Mothers for Nuclear are like two of my favorite people I've ever met in general, uh, in nuclear for sure. But People have really high integrity, very science-based, um, very liberal values, I would say. Um, and they reassured me quite a bit. And then and the, and the plant that I'm closest to is Diablo Canyon, which is the plant that Governor Newsom in California just uh, kept operating, decided to keep operating because we were close to having blackouts and he didn't want to, um, you know, uh, we did, and we didn't want to, we were very close to having blackouts. And also we've changed a lot of minds out here about it. So for me, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has employees at every nuclear plant in the United States, and those employees, those inspectors, are able to go into any room, any broom closet without warning. Um, and you could argue, well, maybe there's some corruption there or something, but their salaries are being paid not by PG&E but by NRC, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. And I've, I, there's no similarly strict, and it should be strict, 
But if only there had been regulators like that on the Deepwater Horizon, for example, or at the natural gas um, pipeline that blew up in South San Francisco, San Bruno, and killed, I think, a half dozen people. Mm-hmm. Um, so that safety regime in nuclear is super good, and that's one of the benefits of the fears that we've had of nuclear. Right, but that's the United States. Like, what about Mexico, Central America, South America, Southeast Asia, Africa? Uh, you know. They have to have um, – so they most of those countries model their regulatory regimes on the NRC. And IAEA, the United Nations Agency, um, will only work with them if they have that regulatory regime in place. Now, I agree that um, part of my uh, getting older from when I was a radical youth – I was when I was a radical youth, I tend to look at the United States as a as – a, as a terrible place, you know? Um, and now I go around the world and I notice how much better our regulatory regimes are, you know, and definitely I think without putting any countries down or without naming any countries, I do think there's countries out there that do need an improved regulatory system. That being said, and if you want to, if you want to credit your younger radical self, you could say that it was kind of American imperial dominance of those countries that gutted their, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I was social safety nets and their regular. Yeah, and I grew up in the 80s. And so that was when Reagan was supporting some pretty terrible actors in Central America. But, you know, what I would say, again, is that if you look at the regulatory regime of, say, in, say, South Korea or Japan or South Africa um, or Nigeria, where they want to have nuclear or India, um, is it as good as the United States? Without sounding like a prejudiced American, I would say probably not. But is it better than the regulatory regimes in those nations of other industries? I would say definitely. So and and so you kind of go, well, but nuclear, it requires a higher regulatory regime. Yes. And also, we got to remember that the worst energy accident in human history was the Banqiao Dam collapse in China, which killed 100,000 people when the dam collapsed. Um, Chernobyl, which was a ridiculous reactor (laughs) design. The uranium had no containment dome. The uranium, the, the, the melted uranium fuel went a- outside. It was like outside and spewing radioactive particles into the environment. And we saw no increase in any cancers other than thyroid cancer. Obviously, we don't, nobody wants any cancers, but if you have to get a cancer, thyroid cancer would be the cancer you'd rather have because you just replace the thyroid and you take thyroxin, which is the synthetic substitute. So nuclear just turns out to be Yes. You know, these plants, if they melt down, it's chaos and terrible. Um, but even when you have the really bad accidents, you see that it's it's shocking how little, how few people are harmed by radiation. Um, so I'm not minimizing the accidents, but I'm just saying I think it's worth putting it in context, especially if you're worried about climate okay. change. So then, but then you've got the question of building those 2000 plants in, in time. Um, so can you, what's, what's your, can walk me through why we can't build plants here? Like I did a little bit of reporting on that South Carolina plant. I, I, I liked our headline on it. it was something like South Carolina paid $8 billion to dig a hole in the ground and then fill it back in like ratepayers across the state, like literally $8 billion was spent and they don't even have a, a building uh, for that, for a proposed nuclear power plant out there. Then there's the one in Georgia. It seems like it's what twenty years in or something, um, like wh- like even in the United States, with these with these strong regulatory regimes and and 
the ability to really tap into ratepayers to get them to subsidize these things, we're still taking decades to build them. And in some cases, taking decades and then being like, ah, you know what? This We actually can't build this. Yeah, so let's me, going on. I want to address, I'm going to come right to the Georgia issue. And let me say something about my broader view of the technology, which is that I'm a heretic among heretics. I'm a pro-nuclear environmentalist, but I dis, I'm in the minority of my view of nuclear in that I think that nuclear should be big and boring and not exciting, not novel. It should be standardized. <laughs> so just on the big, big plants produce cheaper energy. So if you, you, and the reason is, is that it takes, it doesn't take that many more workers to build, operate, or regulate a large plant than a small one. If it had been up to me, we would have stuck with the 1200 megawatt Westinghouse pressurized water reactor that we have in California and in Arizona. Our biggest power plant in the United States is actually this plant called Palo Verde in Arizona. It recycles Phoenix's wastewater, three beautiful reactors. I think they got to the sweet spot. But then there was all these fears around understandable around plants. And so then they said, well, we got to have a different pressurized reactor plant. We got to put the water above the plant, above the reactor, which kind of makes sense, but you can actually just jerry rig like they did in California, the water to be uphill. So if you have a loss of coolant, you can run the water over. But nonetheless, they changed the design and what they built at Georgia is called uh, AP 1000, where you'll see they actually shrunk the size from 1200 to 1000. Nonetheless, they built it. You're totally right. It was, I was, in fact, I was one of the first reporters to actually write about it back in 2000. 16 or 2017. Um, and it's just, you know, the reasons for this, the problems are the same reasons for the problems building a first of a kind anything, including jet planes or stadiums or subway systems. The workers have never done it before. The weld quality, it has to be so much higher. So they were getting guys that were welders on frack equipment that were then going to nuclear and they had to do these really high quality nuclear grades. And the NRC was like, those aren't good enough. And there was a lot of workforce problems. My view is that having all the blood, sweat and tears to build those two beautiful new reactors at Vogel, which by the way, look expensive now, but over an 80 year period, particularly at a time of higher energy prices, doesn't really matter. It just gets, these plants end up paying for themselves within, you know, 30 years or so, 20 to 30 years, depending on energy prices. But that what we should have done is then kept going. That's a green nuclear deal. You would then say, okay, um, and this is Lamar Alexander's proposal, basically. Lamar Alexander is the former Republican senator from Tennessee. Um, in fact, this was an early cap-and-trade proposal for, for people that remember cap-and-trade 10 years ago. And the idea was to basically take nuclear from 20% of your electricity to like 50%. And so for me, if I were king of the world or you know whatever, the king of nuclear, I would say, let's take nuclear from 20% to 50% of electricity in the United States between now and 2050. And you just create a federal, some sort of federal incentive or mandate or something that basically says you all got to do this. And it's got to be this design now, is that going to work politically? I don't know. I mean, it's hard because the United States is so rich in other energies, including oil and gas. It's been hard to get the agreement for that. But I've always felt like the left 
which is part of the reason I wanted to do this podcast with you guys and with Jen, the left is really the key to this because Republicans, the left drives energy policy in the United States, as we just saw with the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act. And I've always felt like if the left came around, Republicans are, and Republicans too, I should say, I don't want to take the burden off of Republicans, but Republicans just tend to be all of the above and they kind of go, it's all good and we just don't want to subsidize anything. But then of course you do have all these subsidies but my view has always been that there would be a, a consensus between pro-nuclear progressives and more discerning Republicans. I'll put it that way. People like, you know, so it's always sort of like, could you get some progressive Democrats and some forward thinking Republicans who are pro-nuclear and have some agreement to build out nuclear like that? And what would be the case for it? I think the case for it would not actually be climate change. I think it will, it might be partly, certainly for the left, but I think for the right and for others, it would be national security. And the case for it would be, you can't get jobs building nuclear plants in other countries if you're not building nuclear plants at home. Right now, the United States is not building plants in other countries. Our, our allies, and maybe they shouldn't be our allies, but unless they are our allies, people like Saudi Arabia, um, UAE are going with China which is bad, or with Korea, which is pretty good actually. But nonetheless, the United States should get back in the nuclear game. So I've, I've modified my view, but basically I think that the United States should have um, two national champions since we don't like socialism in the United States and we prefer to do national champions. So instead of having a state-owned enterprise, we would have two national champions. You know, One would be Westinghouse at AP1000 and the other would be some sort of collaboration with the French or the Koreans. And we would just build out our nuclear plants to some significant portion of our electricity supply over the next several decades with some understanding that, you know, more nuclear means less reliance on um, fossil fuels. And also there's something more. Uh, and I'll stop with this because I've been talking a lot, but there's something more sort of vague, which is that we've always wanted to be involved in other people's nuclear business abroad to get to your point of your concerns about security, mm -hmm. Ryan, both for the plant security, but also for weapons security. The United States, since Eisenhower, has always been like, we, we're going to be, you know, we're going to help you, Adams for Peace, but we're also going to be up in your business a bit. And I think that that's still a security imperative that we should come back to. Speaking with Michael Schellenberger and Ryan Grimm regarding the nuclear debate as far as how we move forward regarding clean energy, uh, the chat has been uh, very active, to say the least. They're being uh, mean. No, they're fine. Uh, Who are they being mean to? Each other. Yeah, each other. Actually, not even, they're not even <laughs> talking about you guys. They're just yelling at each other, saying they know more about nuclear than the other one does, but it is what it is. Uh, there's a couple of things that have been brought up in the chat that I think are important. One, of course, is cost factor. You mentioned, Michael, that it could take about 20 to 30 years. The other is the safety factor regarding how do we avoid a Fukushima-type situation. And then I think the third one, which to me is probably the most important one of all, you know, I know we focused a lot on nuclear, but it seems to me that aside from there's, you know, constant focus on solar panels and wind farms, there's a lot of other alternative energy options that are out there, whether it is biofuel, hydroelectric. Uh, there's also the possibility of incorporating hemp. You know, there's a lot of different things that are at our disposal. And I'm wondering, you know, the, the argument is that nuclear can take a considerable amount of time in order to get it up and running, whereas some of the others, uh, other options may not take as long. So I'm curious from both of your perspectives, if you think that there might be other alternative options aside from nuclear that are not pollutive, that maybe aren't as expensive or may not 
take as long in order to implement? Are those things that you've considered as well? Ryan, do you want to go ahead? Because I just talked a lot. I can say something about my views of biofuels. Yeah. Uh, no, go, uh, go, go ahead. Um, and well, I, uh, let me throw in an extra question on there, um, which, which is related to biofuels and something I've always thought about. And I've been thinking about a lot more lately because Iowa is becoming a red state and our, our biofuel, our ethanol policy, you know, basically uh, has been driven by the fact that Iowa is, was the caucus state and was a swing state. And so therefore uh, everybody went to Iowa and gave Iowa whatever they wanted. Um, you know, people would say that our, you know, our elections begin in Iowa and in Florida. Right. And to the extent that that was true, you know, those states would get favorable treatment. Uh, I, you're already seeing the DNC saying it's basically done with I, the Iowa caucuses. Uh, you're not going to see people, Good. you know, competing yeah. and you won't see, and you're not going to see candidates going to Iowa cause it's, becoming a red state unless something, you know, goes crazy this the next couple of years, which means then you're going to have less, you know, fewer ethanol subsidies. And so you're going to see this kind of mono economy uh, just, just collapse, uh, which, which happened during the pandemic because people stopped driving and because, you know, basically a lot of their corn was just, it's just going into the 10% required ethanol into the gasoline. They weren't selling as much gas, gasoline. Uh, Iowa just, you know, collapsed. Uh, at the same time, uh, we, we still are going to need, you know, plastic, uh, whether it's for, uh, you know, n uh, you know, needles to, to give back vaccines, whether it's for, for, uh, you know, tra trash bags, whether it's for baby stuff, like plastic is, is not going completely away. Like why couldn't, um, why couldn't Iowa transition to making kind of biofuel plastics, uh, which, which then would have some type of a carbon sink, like the math seems to be that there'd be some carbon sink element to it because you'd be kind of pulling carbon out of the air to grow the corn or whatever you use to make the biofuels, turn it into a water bottle or whatever you turn it into. And then when you're done, you landfill it, which is, which is sequestering it. Uh, so like, is that a potential, you, you know, future for biofuels and for, for Iowa? Because the, the idea that we're just going to force like, uh, gas, you know, gas companies to pump their stuff into gasoline uh, isn't sustainable politically, and also isn't sustainable if we're moving to electric vehicles. So I'd yeah. add that to the the chat question. Yeah. Um, so so one thing to so keep in mind, I think I'll, I'll address the pollution impacts, which the science has changed on quite significantly, and so has the consensus among environmental groups. And I'm mostly. My views are very mainstream at this point on biofuels and bioplastics. In other words, I agree with everybody, including Greenpeace, on this issue of biofuels. So the environmental community has basically turned against biofuels over the last 14 years. Um, to give you a sense of it, it was really in, 20, in 2008 when they started to do these um, life cycle analyses. And we always knew that biofuels, or and biofuels meaning like wood or ethanol that they produced a lot of air pollution but the idea was that it would be then captured by the new plants the problem was if you care about conservation and you don't want to just turn over you know what could be beautiful conservation landscapes wetlands grasslands forests to farms which are a monoculture as a conservationist we one of the great successes if you care about endangered species you want to reduce how much land we use for farming since farming is about 90 constitutes about 
you know, 90, 95% of our use of land. Um, cities are, just to give you a sense of it, cities take up half a percent of the ice-free surface of the earth. Humans use about half the ice-free surface of the earth. And of that half, about 90% is for food and about half, and half of that half, by the way, is for meat production. So anything that reduces our use of, of land is good. I'll just run through the science on it. Um, you know, they basically, when we recalculate, they find that um, using corn to make ethanol actually produces twice as much greenhouse gas as gases as gasoline does. Even switchgrass, which was, you know, when I was an advocate for a green, for a new Apollo project, we thought switchgrass would be different. It turned out not to be different. It produces 50% more emissions. And the problem, and so if you were to replace all the gasoline with corn ethanol in the United States, we would need an area 50% larger than all of the U.S. cropland, which would be an ecological disaster. So even the most efficient biofuels, like the ones made from soybeans, require 450 to 750 times more land than petroleum. The best performing biofuel, which is uh, sugarcane ethanol, is used in Brazil, requires 400 times more land to produce the same amount of energy as petroleum. This is basically because uh, petroleum products come from underground and biofuels come from above ground. Now, in terms of bioplastics, it's basically the same. I'm, my glasses, these are tortoise shell, misnamed tortoise shell glasses. I'm happy to say they're made out of petroleum byproduct. They're made out of a waste byproduct from petroleum, from petrochemical processing. They used to be made out of sea turtle shells. It was misnamed tortoise shell, but they're sea turtle shells. They ripped them off the back of sea turtles. We almost drove sea turtles extinct, making tortoise shell jewelry, particularly the Japanese were big users of tortoise shells, including making um, all sorts of jewelry and other um, even sexual uh, pleasuring devices out of tortoise shell. Um, fascinating little detail. Um, but nonetheless, and, and then of course, ivory and elephant tusks for piano keys and billiard balls were replaced by petrochemical plastics. So my view is that, um, and petrochemical plastics are just a byproduct of the oil and gas industry. So you're not actually increasing oil and gas production. Um, so my view is that uh, bio, that we would rather have petrochemical plastics rather than bioplastics because of the environmental impact. And the same thing goes for biofuels. You may have seen some of the publicity about the impact of palm oil plantations to produce biofuels yeah. Oh, yeah. and the impacts on the orangutans. Everything you heard is is absolutely true. One final detail, you may have seen the New York Times piece a few days ago about uh, wood, wood fuel use going up in Europe, and they're even logging, I don't know if I'd call them native forests, because it is Europe, but nonetheless, older forests in Europe for wood fuel. So Germany in its rather, what, what's the right word, insane return from, move away from nuclear back towards, is using coal and wood instead of nuclear so generally, I think there's an energy ladder. You know, you're going from wood to coal to oil to natural gas to uranium, and that's the right direction of travel. So for me, you want to save nature means we don't want to use it, which is why I'm very I always get very concerned whenever I see us moving towards a more material intensive, uh, including a material mode of, mode of transport. Just to give you a sense of it, I drive a 2002 Honda Accord, um, both because I'm cheap. And the car is fine and I maintain it, but also because I think if I got a more efficient car, you go, well, I might save a little bit in terms of fuel, but I think of all the material throughput that that requires. And as an environmentalist, I kind of go, yeah. I think what it means to be an environmentalist is just to use less crap. It's just to take less crap from the earth. And it used to be in the 60s that we thought that using more energy meant using more crap or more materials 
But now we see in a whole bunch of domains of life, this being the most profound, energy is a way to substitute for material throughput. So that this requires a lot of energy, not just this, but all the servers. You guys have maybe seen some of the cryptocurrency stories about like cryptocurrency requires all of Texas's electrical grid and stuff like that. All of that digital economy. So lots of energy, but thank, I don't have to use the newspapers, no more newspapers. I used to read five newspapers a day. Mm -hmm. Whole forests were destroyed from my reading habits. Or remember, I don't know, you guys are, you guys are maybe as old as I am, or you're a little bit younger, Ryan, but you remember stereo consoles, you know, these horrible mm -hmm. systems. Now we have a little Bluetooth speaker system. So that process of dematerialization is a, is a beneficial process for the natural environment. So I get worried when we are kind of like going back from dematerialized technologies to material intensive technologies, which is why I tend to be skeptical of EVs and think it's more likely and would be better for the environment if we actually went to hydrogen fuel cells, which use significantly less materials. Um, and that's also why I defend gas you know, as a, an important fuel for the, the period before we get to nuclear. So the bioplastics idea doesn't sound very good. That's fine. So what is, I'll, I'll scrap it. I wasn't very married. So what, so what Iowa what needs to figure something out, though. I'm what glad to hear that we're not going to depend on Iowa for our primaries anymore. I, I'm glad about that, too. But what's this? Yeah. I mean, if, if, if doing nuclear power is something that takes 20 years, like as somebody who lives in South Florida, we don't have that kind of time. Um, so like, what, what is the solution? Because, you know, here, when they talk more about fracking or things in the Gulf, it's like that is doing such horrible things to our ecosystem here that that is not helping. So what is the solution? I mean, you would think the sunshine state would just use sunshine, but it doesn't work that way. Yeah. So again, I mean, I think, remember just on the emissions, remember we reduced our emissions more than any country in the history of the world from 2005 to 2020 to 2020 coal to natural gas was 61% of that reduction, but it also takes a lot of credit for the 31% decline from solar and wind. So gas has natural gas production definitely has problems, but when you compare it to mountaintop removal, coal mining, Every single, um, on every single metric, the environmental benefits of natural gas are superior to coal. I mean, think about you burning natural gas in your kitchen every day, twice a day, and you would never burn coal in your kitchen. It just burns so much dirtier. So my view is um, the process of decarbonization, let's just talk about it like that. Um, the process of getting the carbon out of the energy system, the first place to do that is going to be on your electrical grid because we can see it's pretty simple to replace. I mean, it's, everything's hard, but it's easier to replace your coal and fossil uh, power plants with natural gas and nuclear. Just, I mean, I know there's a political problem, but nonetheless, it's not that it's not super difficult. I think then you can replace cooking and heating with electricity. And, and, and that's also a good demand for all those nuclear plants. Um, but that's going to require a significant increase. Now, let's say we do go to electric cars. I did run a calculation on this. I did check it with other people, so I'm pretty sure it's good, which is that if California went to um, 100% uh, electric vehicles or fuel cell vehicles, by the way. So just if you were, if you were to basically get all of your your energy for your transportation in California, which is about 30 million electric vehicles and trucks, uh, either from electricity for your EVs or from your for hydrogen, it would take about 10 nuclear power plants the size of Diablo Canyon. So about 20 nuclear reactors or 17 to 20 gigawatts of nuclear power plants. That's just for the transportation side. 
So I think you've got to have a perspective that is a centuries long perspective. Um, you know, climate change, it's real, but it's not like anybody, there's, there's no proposal to, to solve, to phase out fossil fuels in 10 years, no matter what anybody says, it's always been multi-decadal. Mm-hmm. And so you're looking at squeezing all the coal out of the system. And I should note that the war, the attacks on gas and the repression of gas production has resulted in more coal. So we're going to burn more coal, we burned more coal in the United States last year than we did in 2020. And we're burning more coal in 2022 than we did in 2019. And so, and then globally, it's the same thing. So gas, I just think we have to um, not be so rigid and understand that coal, uh, that gas is a significant improvement over coal and it buys us a significant amount of time before we can get to nuclear. Michael, I have to push back on you regarding natural gas, because again, if we're talking about fracking gas, it's the most devastating example of how communities get destroyed. Uh, you know, when you're talking about the contamination of the drinking water, we have a serious problem with with clean drinking water in Jackson, Mississippi, Flint, Michigan, uh, most of West Virginia. There are problems out the yin yang regarding clean drinking water and fracking contributes a, hev- a, a hell of a lot regarding that water contamination, plus the man-made uh, earthquakes as a result, uh, devaluing uh, properties, things of that nature. Uh, there has to be other options regarding, you know, whether the transition, like you said, is going to come from somewhere. If it's not going to come necessarily from, you know, nuclear as quickly as one would hope, or in this case, other alternative energy options. Again, I did mention hemp, and obviously we have hydroelectric, and, you know, there's some other ones, um, obviously, that are, you know, not registering at the moment. But, you know, we do have options that we can utilize. But I do think that natural gas is is just one that uh, the Maybe, you, as you alluded to, we can't just pull back from it right now, but it doesn't seem like we're making a good enough effort to try to get away from it. And a lot of communities in, like I said, Pennsylvania, Michigan, West Virginia, the list goes on and on. But it seems to me, just based on you know the people that I've spoken to, a good friend of the show, Jordan Cheriton, a status quo goes around and he speaks to the people who have suffered from living in these communities that deal with this problem every day. I, I think that f- hydraulic fracturing is something that we really have to scrap as soon as possible. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's relative risk, you know, so um, um, gas has been leaking in natural gas. Methane has been leaking into water systems for decades, long before fracking. Um, In fact, in the Gasland movie that Josh Fox made, where the guy lights his faucet on fire, that took place in New York where fracking hadn't occurred. And it was from an older well that had been improperly sealed and the gas seeped out into the water. It's not great. It's also not a hazard, but it certainly can't be blamed on fracking. The fracking wells are sealed better than the older well, wells, just like any older technology. There's waste. Um, in terms of the, the other issues, the wastewater, by the way, I'm from Colorado. It's a huge fracking state. Um, but, you know, it's it's if you if you dump the wastewater onto the ground without disposing of it properly, it can contaminate. But we have regulations against that. So that's illegal. If it's happening, it should not be happening. And again, it's just, um, you know, it's just better than coal. And that's what it's replacing. I mean, the amount of water, um, the, the, you know, the, the discharge from coal plants, from coal mining are just significantly higher. I mean, if I'll just give you these numbers are, you know, just in terms of air pollution, gas emits 17 to 40 times less sulfur dioxide, one eighth as deadly as coal, counting accidents and air pollution, 25 to 50 times less water used for gas than for coal. 
Um, you know, if you're going to go move to biofuels, it's also a huge amount of water, you know, and a huge amount of other impacts. I mean, I've, I've been pushing back against some of the overstated alarmism, I think, on fertilizer runoff, but you certainly are going to get other kind of chemical runoffs and consequences from agriculture. So, you know, I, my view is that if you don't like fracking, then we should then you should join the campaign for a green nuclear deal. My former colleague, uh, Maddie Hilly, who I think Brian might have had on on Rising, or at least maybe she was on um um, maybe I thought she was on with you, but maybe she's on with somebody else. But Maddie Hilly advocated for a green yeah. nuclear deal. Certainly possible. And I think the, moving the left on to be more supportive of nuclear, I think, is incredibly important work. Um, well, oh, I, part I, of me I, thinks I, there's a lot of people, progressives that would be more pro-nuclear, but they're just waiting for the public to change. And, they're, and so that sense, everybody coming out in support of well, nuclear on, on that point. On that point, let me give you unsolicited advice combined with a question, uh, which is if you do really sure. want the left, if you want to persuade the left and pull them over to the, the nuclear side, I feel like there has to be more talk about it, it in combination with renewables because oftentimes it, it feels like okay, the argument is just against renewables try and knock down renewables and then what not you know, point, pointing out the legitimate you know, limitations to wind and solar and then come in and say, oh, the, the answer to this is is nuclear. And so I think people are just going to say, look at that and they're going to say, this is this is just an effort to like knock down wind and solar uh, rather than in, ra rather than a, a kind of effort to put forward the virtues of, of nuclear. So maybe there's like if it come if. And so the question would be, where do you see the future of of wind and solar? And do you do you have more confidence today than you did, say, ten years ago, given the, like the collapse in in price, or or do you really just think uh, that that's not a technological innovation and that it's just about um, slave labor in 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 China? Because if because I think if you feel if you if you tell people on the left that you know wind and solar is, is hopeless, um, you you're pro even if you're right, you're going to lose them. Yeah, I mean, I hear you. I think I mean, there's I definitely I yeah. No, go ahead. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think that um, my experience is that if you say, hey, we need it all, we need renewables, we need nuclear, we need carbon capture and storage, that it goes down better. But that I find then that many of my progressive friends go, well, let's just do the renewables for now. And then maybe we have to get to nuclear later. And so um, I feel like people need to know the truth about uh, renewables. Um, the Chinese have made solar panels cheaper the efficiency of those panels is not the main reason for the cheapness. In other words, we measure the efficiency of solar panels by their efficiency in converting sunlight into electricity. And according to NREL's studies, the main solar panel that they've brought the price down on has improved its efficiency by about 3% over the last 10 years. But the price of solar panels came down 75% or more over the last 10 years. And I think that the main reasons for that are the heavy Chinese government subsidies, the use of coal, and the use of, of incarcerated Uyghur Muslim labor. Now, I may be wrong, of course, I may be wrong about everything, um, but I, if I'm wrong about solar, let's find out by producing our own solar panels here in the United States and see if we can produce them at a low cost. I'm very, I, 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 for me, 
I just think there's a moral issue that you should not be buying solar panels made by people in concentration camps. For me, that's just a categorical imperative. That goes, way, that, goes the, that goes the same for sneakers like Nike. Uh, well, I, we can't start, start, you know, but yeah. you're, you, you can't, if you, we, we're going to get rid of a lot of things if you start doing that. Well, I will say, I, I know, I know the argument like these, but yeah. I will say, I think there is a difference, which is that what's going on in Xinjiang province is not the same as Guangzhou. Guangzhou, which I visited, um, I right wouldn't love to work in that factory in Guangzhou where they make these. But these workers making these are not being treated in the same way that Muslims in Xinjiang are. And so there is a there is a difference there. Um, I would like to reassure a bunch of industries, particularly strategic industries that we would not want to have outside this country. But for me, the revelations on how solar panels are made with incarcerated Muslim labor in concentration camps crosses a line that I don't think is the same as the people making iPhones and sneakers, because I think a lot of those folks are folks that are coming off the farm. They're improving their lives. The lives on the farm in China were very hard. The lives in the factories are hard, but they're better than the life on the farm. But I think that's different from the Xinjiang province um, concentration camp. So if I'm wrong and solar panels, there's something that happened that made solar panels really cheap, then we should find out by producing them here as, as opposed to continuing to import them from China. I will say something else about renewables, though, which is just that the intermittency of renewables is the one of the main reasons for their high cost. So what you see in California, for example, where we have high renewables penetration, and this is the same everywhere in the world, certainly including in Germany, is it just requires more people and more machines to maintain a reliable electricity when you've got wind electricity contributing to the grid like that and solar going like this on days that it's sunny. So when we had black, when we were coming close to having blackouts two weeks ago in California, the sun would set at, at 6 p.m. and you would see the solar contribution going down and all the gas plants would be ramping up. There was more people and more machinery that had to be involved to manage that intermittency. So I will say I've got my wife, you know, we have solar panels in our backyard. It's not like a religious you know, concern or something. But I think this thing of the of continuing to source from Xinjiang province is just problematic. And when I testified, by the way, in front of Congress, and I made this point, AOC visibly uh, shifted uncomfortably in her seat. So I do think it is one of the things that progressives, and also when I testified in the Senate on it, it was the senator from, the astronaut from Arizona. Mark, Mark Kelly. Was it? Yeah. Kelly. Yeah. yeah. And, and he, the uh, like we know this is a problem. And, you know, I think Democrats know that that we need to deal with this. Yeah. And, so. and the and the Biden administration tried to do something about it. It launched the commerce investigation and a bunch of, you know, Chinese linked firms put together a, a trade group yeah. that then ran a whole bunch of ads in Washington saying that they were the American solar industry and that you were going to hurt them if you crack down on uh, this this pipeline of slave labor and, and uh, they eventually were pressured into backing off. Um, there's, there's some indication that they might try again, um, you know, that they're going back at these, at these companies with this, with this investigation, but yeah, that's, they need to do that because otherwise they'll never um, be able to build a, be able to build a plan here. Yeah. I mean, I find, I find it just because I have people that tell me about how terrible it was, how the Navajo were treated in world war II in uranium mining and then turn around and justify solar panels produced in Xinjiang. And I just think it's inconsistent. You know, our nuclear industry in the United States 
has a lot of problems, but I have to say the treatment of workers is much higher, much better than in almost any other industry. The pay is higher. The uranium mining itself is, it's really something of a miracle. I mean, you know, the above ground surface of uranium mines is undisturbed. They just shoot hot water into the mine and it comes out because you just need so little of it. So for me, that low material throughput also has, you know, real human benefits that we shouldn't overlook. I just want to say this is one of those things where you're giving it and getting it from somewhere. Like either it's going to be people mining lithium or it's going to be slaves in in China. And people don't want to face the fact that ultimately we cannot continue our usage at the levels and living how we're living. And I don't think that it's going to be feasible to do live the way we live with renewables. Like there's going to have, something's going to have to give. And a lot of the stuff that we are so dependent on is just, a lot of it is superfluous. And I think that we're going to end up having to get back to basics. That's, you know, but I want to move to a small, like, you know, farm in the woods kind of situation and just live. But I want to farm it. Yeah. <laughs> I want to get, make it meadow. I think the best way to close is to get to a topic that I think we will all agree on, which, of course, is the power of the fossil fuel industry on Capitol Hill. Ryan, you know this better than anybody. Uh, The amount of money that they spend on lobbying every year is only rivaled by private insurance and big pharma. Um, I would like to think that they probably stand in the way of us getting where we need to go, probably more than anybody else. Uh, There's a reason why the average car on the road today in terms of the average MPG is not really that different than it was even a generation ago. And I solely put that at the feet of the big oil. I mean, their interest is to make as much profit as possible at the, you know, obviously at the detriment of our environment. So I'm curious if you guys think that there's a sort of a way to come together on this issue regarding how the fossil fuel industry really does dominate and is standing in the way, not just of alternative energy, but nuclear energy as well. I mean, yeah, I mean, they are, they are incredibly dominant. Um, and, you know, the, the num- the subsidies they get are, are incredible. And the, the, <laughs> kind of intangible subsidies they get like what does it cost uh you know to keep the shipping lanes in the red sea flow or you know the persian gulf flowing like they're not paying for that we're all we're all paying for that um so you know to and you know i think and i'm curious if you agree the inflation reduction act did include significant nuclear um uh included a lot of conservation and included um a lot of carbon capture. Uh, in some ways, it feels like a Schellenberger bill. Uh, like it, it kind of touches on all these different things. While e- even if the Democrats, you know, chose to highlight the, uh, you know, the renewable pieces of it. Um, but so, but yeah, you're you're right. Uh, the big oil is still massively, massively powerful in Washington. Yeah, I mean, I'll just close by saying it's actually, Ryan, it's nice to have a, a face-to-face with you. I think it was actually much um, more, uh, we were both calmer than I think I'd expected this to be, which is nice. Um, and, uh, you know, um, so I enjoy the conversation. You know, for me, I still think the big event and the main event is nuclear power. It's such a difficult technology, you guys. It's it's really the... Um, you know, ultimately, when the, like in this current crisis, we just fall back on fossil fuels. At the end of the day, 
when California can't keep the lights on, we don't install more solar panels. Gavin Newsom fires up the kerosene and diesel generators. You know, when, when Germany faces shutoff of Russian gas, they burn more coal and sadly more, more wood. And the fears of nuclear have now kept even the German government. I mean, the German government's actually hasn't committed to keeping their nuclear plants operating. You know, they're kind of keeping them online. They're sort of half-assing it. But I do think the main event is nuclear. Um, you know, fossil fuels, we can argue about them, but the whole economy, I mean, it's 81% of our energy. It's our cars, our trucks, our machines. It's going to take a long time for that to turn over. And the sooner it'll, and the sooner we get away from it is the sooner we get to nuclear. So for me, that's, that's kind of the main event. That's why I spend so much time on it. It's incredibly um, emotional technology. People say really hostile things about it to people. I've, I've definitely taken my share of heat on it. Um, I think it made it a little bit easier for other people to, to consider it. But I do think any amount of progressive support for nuclear um, is really welcome. And I'm, I've got a lot of time to talk about it and how to make the case for it. I do think it's going to become harder and harder to rely on supply chains that are basically located in China, whether or not you know we agree, whether or not we cut them off in terms of human rights issues. Um, I do think for just geopolitical reasons, our policymakers are not going to want to remain heavily dependent on them. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I praised some of the nuclear stuff in the Inflation Reduction Act. I don't think it's going to get us where we need to go. I think we still need something to just say, hey, we're going to take nuclear to half of our electricity by such and such a date. I don't think that it'll work in any other way. Well, if the but, house uh, if the house goes Republican next uh, next Congress, I'm I could imagine Democrats be like, look, if if you if you if we can, you know, really like throw do some industrial policy around um, bringing solar onshore, and yes. you want and you want to couple that with uh, throwing money at nuclear. Democrats are fine with throwing money at. I think was, people were expecting a big debate. That was the thing. People were expecting a big debate. And this just was much more informative. I think we just, well, maybe we just we know how to have that. Maybe we, we create, maybe we, we create, a, maybe we create a great environment that isn't just about clicks. We're, we're not hostile. You know, if you two were throwing mud at each other, maybe we would have had a thousand people watching at one time. But, you know, whatever. I think, the, well, I think the information. It's a pleasure, guys. I really enjoyed this, actually. And, and Ryan, it was nice to have a conversation with you. And, so Ryan, did you get your me. questions answered? Like, I mean, like, do you feel like you understand better where he's coming from and what he was saying? Like, did you get clarification? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm still nervous that put that if if Congress did something that with Republicans in power, whatever, fine. Like, that's better than nothing. Um, but the getting the the number of plants that we would need around the world is still like it's a massive challenge. Yeah, like that yeah. alone. So we need your help. There you go. <laughs> we'll Thanks, guys. Find some Thanks, guys. Got to go to my you dinner. Guys. Appreciate we'll you. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Michael. Bye bye. I think the people want debating; they want fighting. No, but you know what i what I take away from this conversation is that if we just try to find some common ground, the common ground is there to be found, and. That, to me, is what it's all about. Not if everybody in the chat is necessarily going to agree. And I think there are some good points that, are, that have been made, you know, regarding the sustainability of the current options that we're utilizing in order to get away from fossil fuels, particularly coal and natural gas. But Michael brought up a really good argument at the end, which, of course, is if you're looking what's happened to the energy grid in Germany and how, because of what's happened with the war in Ukraine, you know, they're 
the the left, the hard left, who's been advocating hard, 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 get away from nuclear, get away from nuclear. Well, they're getting away from nuclear with coal. And I think we can agree that that's worse. So finding that common ground. I, I'm, I'm like, I don't even like to think of it. This isn't a left right thing. Like, because it, it really, this should not be a left right thing. This is a human thing. We're, we're all, well, Again, to me, anything we do, if it isn't done, and Ryan was right about this, this is a global thing. So yes. anything that we do that isn't also mirrored by China and India. and India, I mean, those are the big two, then it's sort of for nothing. And then the other point is the military industrial complex and big agra. Those two industries alone are the problem. So even if we all switched over to electric cars, let's say we all switched over to electric cars, wouldn't that be fun? And let's even say that we have a grid that has a good percentage that is renewable or non-fossil fuel. Let's just say that. It still won't make a difference if the military industrial complex is still doing what it's doing. And, and that seems to not be lessening anytime soon. So, so long as we have that and yeah, the meat production, big agra, all of that. You know, they want to make this be like it's an individual problem. It is not an individual problem. Now, I do like having a hybrid because I feel like, you know, I have to spend less time filling up my car with gas. I'm putting out less emissions, but we're still on a grid that is primarily dependent on fossil fuels. So the overall impact is not that big of a difference. I definitely agree. And I think that as somebody who has also owned uh, two hybrids, uh, it's a major cost saver. And it's definitely a carbon footprint reducer. There's no question about it. And to it's me, not going to solve the problem. It's not going to solve the problem. It's one of many that has to be part of this. For me, I do it in stuff. terms of like what I can live with. Like, I think that all of these like banning plastic straw initiatives in municipalities are cute. And that's nice. That's not going to really solve our problem, I especially agree. with plastics. But. I reduce use when I can because the thought of some sea turtle having a straw that I used stuck in its nostril until it dies is not something that I want to live with. So I choose to not do those things, but banning them is not going to is not going to solve our problem. And I definitely agree with what Paul uh, had pointed out, which we didn't really get a chance to talk about, which is the biggest carbon fo footprint emitter on the on the planet is the military industrial complex. But that's a topic that can be discussed. Yes. Like that's a whole show. Yes. Uh, at length. But we have another show to do because we're continuing. Because on this show, we're always trying to teach so you guys, guys as much information that was, as possible. And, well, we're normally not even on Thursday night. But so, yeah, so we have another segment coming up. When our good friend Steve Grumbrine of The Real Progressives recommends that we bring on special guests, we simply must do that. Any uh, friend of Steve's is a friend of mine. Yes. And, uh, well, I guess I'm a friend, too. So what can I say? Anyway, we are very pleased to bring on two gentlemen who are going to discuss land value tax. I know. It sounds incredible. It's very sexy. Very, very important. Very sexy Very stuff. important. And you must know what that's all about. So all about, about, you are about, all over it. I am not all about, I, I don't have any water to drink right now. So that's my problem. Okay. Now I can feel better now okay. that I can wet but my palate. There's that. But okay. So we're going from talking about the exciting nuclear power to talking about land value. Oh, the fun never ends here at Generational Change. Buy, buy land if you can. Yeah. I'm working on it, but mine will not be here because- they are yeah. both from Common Ground USA, and Lord knows we like a lot of common ground on this podcast. That's what we strive to do. Josh Vincent and Rich Nyman, welcome to Generational Change. 
Good to be here. How are you? And, and land is sexy like you can't believe. <laughs> it would be okay. It, me being able to buy some where I want to buy some, that would be sexy. But I don't know about like where you general. want and where you can are two different Correct. things. Correct. That's another. Mm-hmm. That's another. Will well, Rogers said by land. Actually, Josh, are you representing Common Ground USA or who are you representing here? Uh, I, I, I stand for humanity. Uh, I'm, the executive, <laughs> I'm the executive director of a nonprofit uh, called the Center for the Study of Economics. Okay. And so tell me about where this even got based and we were going to be starting to talk about land value. Well, this is something that Mr. Grumbine insisted we have these two gentlemen on to talk about. And I think, you know, we're looking at... Um, I mean, obviously, you guys can probably best explain the basic parameters of what land, you know, the, the basic idea behind land value tax and what that's all about. Uh, we're seeing a uh, where the economy is not heading in the right direction right now. We all know that. And we talk at great length about having more knowledge uh, as individuals in terms of what we can do. So whoever wants to jump in first and give the basics of land value tax, that would be awesome. Josh, go ahead. I'll defer to my elders. Ooh. Ooh, I was the oldest person in the last segment, so, you know, I, I don't have any, you know, ground here, but please. <laughs> okay, um, I'll start then. The land value tax is uh, seemingly uh, a coma-inducing concept, uh, but it actually gets some people very, very upset. And the people get it gets upset are people that are taking the public wealth, the public legacy that all of us have uh, that's in the land, and they're taking it and putting it into their their private pockets. And that includes uh, all kinds of things like uh, taking uh, scarce natural resources, uh, buying up uh, vacant land in cities and taking away opportunities for working people and, and small businesses. And what we try to do, and uh, I, I work on the ground with cities uh, across the United States, is we try to shift our tax system away from bads, uh, from uh, goods, I should say, like income and, and wages and sales, and to take those taxes and put them into something that's sitting there, and that's land value. And land value is, is different uh, in that no one person creates it. Uh, the community creates it. It's, it's really one of the few things that we all as human beings hold in common. And if we create that land value, the community, then we, the community, should, should get a cut of it uh, instead of it being shortstopped uh, like a baseball player. Uh, you know, from between the land and the people. Uh, and too many people make too much money. Uh, by not doing anything, by not lifting their finger to do anything. They collect rents uh, and they they really make themselves insanely, perversely wealthy simply by owning land, sitting on it and letting it appreciate and not doing any work. Yeah. Rich, jump in, brother. Yeah, well, I was just going to say, to really get excited about this idea, I think you have to understand the relationship between <clears throat> the land value tax and land rent. So what that means is that if you're, if you could rent your land at, at say, like 6% of what it would sell for, 
then and you were then taxed at six percent of what the land would sell for then that means you're renting the land from the community so it's similar to there's some places around the world like arden delaware where um the, the city's land is held in trust and the homeowners have title to their to their structures their houses but they're renting the land from the community so when you, you can achieve the same thing as that with the land value tax so what that means is that you don't have to borrow money in order to acquire land because you're, you're renting it from the community. And that also means that all the land rent payments that are currently being funneled into the financial system right now is going to everyone equally. So that's that's one reason why I really like the idea. And how is this something like how is this something that would affect, like, let's say us in Florida? You know what I mean? Like, how is this something that would affect us? Because obviously, our taxes are incredibly high here, like, and our, yet our houses are going to potentially all be underwater. So, you know, what does that do to our taxable land value? <laughs> when you say underwater, you mean literally or you mean financially? Oh, I mean literally. <laughs> okay. You know, it's funny. Florida is such a, a variegated uh, state. Uh, if we had a land value tax and you bought lots of land and let me pluck one out of the air, Clay County. Which is, you know, kind of, kind of in the woods, kind of in the scrub. Uh, the land's not very valuable, so that would be a good place for you to buy land. Again, they're they're not making any more. But if you are in an appreciating part of Florida, and I don't know where you guys are, we're south. We're we're, we're literally going to be underwater here. We're in Broward. Well, if you're going to be underwater, then buy land that's further inland. We need to be going to higher ground, people north of Lake Okeechobee. Yeah, actually, that's true. That's how that's how natural land economics works. Uh, I don't know if uh, you guys are too young. The Superman movie with yes. uh, Gene Hackman as Lex Luthor. I saw it in the theater. Otis, I'm not that oh, yeah, young. Yeah. Otisburg. I was, I was thinking of that too, John. I was thinking Otisburg yeah. might be a good place to buy land, but you know. <laughs> well, I mean, his scheme to get rich was to sink California, and he would buy the land that was left over. Yeah. He needs to be a genius. Right. Well, I always think yeah. that eventually Tahoe will be oceanfront. I mean, that's it's like that whole state could easily crumble that's off the side. But we're, we need scuba gear here. That's our problem. And I just mm. I, I think that it's interesting because even though I look at what's happening here as I can't fathom why anybody would be investing in property down here, especially coastal property. And yet it's nonstop. It's nonstop. Like there are people. How is that valuable when we know it's going to be underwater? Well, it's interesting. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm going to grab it because I've thought about it. I live on the uh, coast, uh, near the coast in New Jersey. And the government, everybody, uh, a licensed practical nurse in Chicago, you name it, they all contribute money, tax money, to uh, beach reclamation projects. They contribute money to really uh, make the landowners who are sitting on uh, the, the waterfront very rich. And nobody built on that waterfront 150 years ago because it was your investment. It was your risk. Now, uh, the risk is uh, essentially taken from the citizens. And so, yeah, these sharks, land sharks, uh, will grab lots of land. They'll make lots of money. And uh, that's what, unfortunately, that's what it's all about is the money. 
And uh, so in Florida, your taxes actually are, are not too bad because the lack of income tax uh, is what's driving everybody from my state, New Jersey and New York and, and God knows where else. Minnesota, where I live, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. That is definitely a big problem. I am a, I'm from New Jersey and I definitely, it's one of the motivators that made me come to Florida is the taxes are definitely much more lenient, especially for small businesses. And mm-hmm. it's, uh, yeah. it, it is important. I think, to have. Yeah. I think doesn't Florida heavily rely on sales taxes though. So, you know, obviously those are very regressive um, and they're also, you know, damaging to the economy. So that's one, one nice thing about taxing land value. It's, it's actually very progressive and it's very good for the economy because you're not, so explain how it would you know, work. Explain how that would look. Explain what that would look like. Like how that works. Like if we were to do what you know what you're saying. Like is this something that it would be obviously um, a state thing? And you're talking about. Did, are there any states that have this? Is there any place that does this that we can look at and see? Um, Josh, yeah, you talking about Pennsylvania. <laughs> Yeah, I, I will. We have there are twenty cities in Pennsylvania that use this, and cities can use it. Nations can do it. Uh, most states in Australia use a land value tax and they're expanding it because they're trying to beat back the uh, the uh, appreciation of land value, which is keeping people out of decent housing. And uh, so in the United States, you know, I go to towns and uh, do research and essentially that they we now pay one tax rate for everything on property. And our idea is kind of simple, just abate the building part and make up the difference in the land part. There's enough land value to pay for a community uh, without taxing sales. I mean, Florida, as Rich said, the sales tax is incredibly regressive and it goes after, you know, Florida man a lot harder than it would uh, people living in, you know, Palm Beach. Uh, it's uh, it's one of the worst taxes there is. So we think that if we steer ourselves away from bad habits of uh, taxes that we've used for you know 150 years, we'll go back to uh, the way it was in the beginning, the founding of the nation. We had a national land value tax. <laughs> so it worked then. George Washington might not have liked it, but Ben Franklin did. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's why we had good founding fathers and ones that had some sketchiness to them, to say the least. Uh, I think oh, yeah. knowing the, the knowledge is uh, is very important because, again, uh, we have created a society of renters, if you will, which uh, has basically allowed people not to you know, build wealth over time. Uh, real estate has always proven to be one of the most uh secure types of long-term investments that you can make. Nothing's guaranteed. Obviously, we saw what happened in 2008, but generally speaking, um, it is the safest way to do it. And right now, uh, people are just not able to put any money aside. What are we talking about in terms of a cost factor if people were you know, interested? I mean, I know that most people want land in desirable parts of the country, uh, but that's not always what you're going to get. But land is out there and, and you can get it. So what do you guys recommend as far as people who may be looking for the best options as far as where they may want to put their money? And, uh, you know, the average person, we're not talking about, you know, yeah. the rich, uh, 
mega corporations that come down to parts of the villages here in Florida and buy up entire communities like 150 deep in tens of millions of dollars and turn it just into rental communities so people will never own again. So how do you guys see it in terms of what the average person could be doing right now? Rich. You're on mute, Rich. Something, you're muted, you're muted. Yes. There you go, can you hear me now? Now. Yeah, I was just gonna say, I think people should buy into community land trusts. So, um, you know, there's a bunch of them around the country these days and you're just financing the building portion of the home and not the land value portion. So um, it's a lot cheaper, you know, when you finance the land, it's much more, I'm sorry, when you finance the building, it's much more stable than financing the land portion because buildings don't get inflated by bubbles. It's the land value portion that gets inflated. So if there's a, if there's a community land trust in your area, then I'd, I'd recommend buying into that. Yeah, well, that's something new that I didn't know. Right. Well, and where do the like where do those tend to be? Like, are any of those like somewhere, let's say, in the mountains outside of Asheville, where I'm looking to buy land? Like, is that something that like where do you do that? Well, I mean, there's about 300 community land trusts around the country. So you, I'm sure, if you googled, you can find one in an area that you'd want to live in. Um, where in particular, I don't know. I know we have several here in the Twin Cities metro area. Josh, there must be several around where you are, I'm sure. And there must be some in Florida as well. Well, in in struggling cities where land is so expensive and people are getting thrown out of neighborhoods that they've they've come to love and their grandparents loved and their parents loved, uh, the only way to get out from under this stupid system that we have with real estate is to take the land out of the equation and let the economy work more efficiently. And then people can actually make some money. And uh, I think turning a, a patch of land in, say, Philadelphia into a community land trust has had a really, a really great effect because it brings in small businesses, cottage businesses. And one thing that I'm working on right now are trailer parks in the uh, Mountain West, say Montana, Idaho, uh, and around Denver. Because you don't own the land in a trailer park. You're, you're renting it from the landlord. Yeah. So that's sort of what we're talking about, except it's a private holding. But yeah. if, the, yeah. if we got a community, a community land trust underneath that mobile home park, uh, people then could get these very affordable houses and they could stay there as long as they wanted. And uh, I think they're making community land trust, correct me if I'm wrong, Rich, uh, uh, around these manufactured uh, home communities, yeah, a lot of a lot of them are going that direction. So the the residents own the land collectively; they have title to the you know to the trailer, but um, they're paying the rent, the land rent into you know the community chest essentially, and using those for common purposes. So I don't know if you all know that the Monopoly board game was actually invented to teach these principles so it was originally called the, the landlord's game and the players could vote in the middle of the game to switch the rules so that instead of paying land rent to the other players you'd pay it into the community chest and then that would get shared equally among everybody so um that's that's one way to think about it so you're saying that the original monopoly was basically like a communist situation uh it was a it was a georges it's based on ideas of henry george so um lizzie mcgee was was the inventor of the game interesting hundred and some years ago and then it got it got stolen by someone who cleaned it for, for themselves and, and turned it into this capitalistic uh 
uh, game, but originally it was a more um, communalistic game. That's kind very of, poetic. That's extremely, <laughs> extremely poetic. Kind of, sound, kind of sounds yeah. like the way that our shadow government is operating that over is the past 70, 80 years as a result yeah. of FBI. And actually, there was a book that came out about it called The Monopolist. Um, when was that, Josh? Five, six years ago? Mary Pyle. Yeah, and they're now, they're now they're making it into a movie. So look for that at your, at your theaters. And, uh, and it's funny with our proposal, it's really a hybrid between socialism, there I said it, and capitalism. <laughs> it's, not oh, it's a hybrid system. That's what, but that is what we need. That's what works. Yeah, yeah. We, like, yeah we want to, if, if you, if you were to put up a house, you buy some land, whatever, and you put up a house on your own dime and your own time, uh, why does the government say stick them up? Give me a property tax. Because they don't want the people to have any knowledge about how they can get out of their own rut. They don't realize that there are so few people that control everything, but there are tens of mil- hundreds of millions more that are like. They ready. don't want people to own homes because it keeps people further divided. And and the types of things that you're talking about are people getting gentrified out of their neighborhoods is what's happening left and right. And that's happening everywhere. And the and that is basically a bunch of rich people deciding which property they're going to ha- give value to and which property they're not. And they do it in so many nefarious ways. It's like it's a game. It's ridiculous. Yeah. It's a dangerous yeah. Well, I mean, these all these ideas all you know come from a book called Progress and Poverty that Henry George wrote back in the Gilded Age. And and the title of the book, Progress and Poverty, describes what we see. So like I'm I'm from Minneapolis and when I grew up here in the seventies we weren't as wealthy as a community as we are now, but we are much more equal. So as we've developed economically, the inequality has just, you know, skyrocketed. So so that's what Henry George was describing. The reason that it is is because the land value has increased and the people who are able to collect the land rent get richer, but the ones that had to pay it have to compete more and more in order to be able to do so. So but if you if you start collecting that land rent for the community, you can reverse that process. You're, that's so like socialist. Like that's just so like. I mean, you know, you're talking crazy talk now. You know, like power to the people and stuff. Well, I'm sure the FBI already watches our channel, so they're gonna I be can't watch, even. They're going to be watching your ass now. So just you know. <laughs> Be ready. <laughs> yeah. Well, Mark, but it's very, it's very capitalist. It's very capitalist because you're untaxing labor and capital. So, uh, what people, you know, the efforts that people make get untaxed, and it's the unearned income that gets taxed. So that's why it's kind of trying to take both the best of both systems. Yeah. Really. It, well, in the city, city of Allentown, let me just jump in to tell you how it works yeah. uh, on the ground is Allentown was a very poor steel town, Allentown, Pennsylvania. I know it. uh, it, it's doing better now because of refugees from New Jersey. Uh, <laughs> but it was in terrible shape, and the people actually voted for this tax program. But they voted it in, in conjunction with freezing all the taxes that were currently being used, and they could never rise again. And at the same time, it untaxed the buildings. So it actually ended up saving a lot of money for taxpayers. And it's funny, it's hard. I think that's why it gets fought so often. It saves people money. And it takes money out of the pockets of nefarious people, as you said, you know, the, the landowners and the Deutsche Bank, et cetera. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I always say, uh, I, when I think about the political discourse in our country and everyone thinks that somebody like Donald Trump or even Joe Biden are, the, are really the most powerful person and they think that they held more power than somebody like Bill Gates who's buying up <laughs> hundreds of thousands of acres of land. It's like- Largest I don't single even have, individual yeah, landowner I can't, in the country. Yeah, I, can't, I can't even converse with a person like that because their ability to think in logistical terms regarding what our circumstances really are what I'm, really is power. Power is not what's political power. That's not real power, real power. And I find that Bill Gates owning all that property incredibly scary. I, oh find, yeah. a, I find a lot of things about Bill Gates incredibly scary, but <laughs> but the land ownership and the agricultural he's the ownership he's the most is, is very scary. Yeah. And it does Being not there. get enough attention in when you're watching like the Bezos Musk, like, you know, penis spaceship debates, you're not paying attention. <laughs> and then there's like Bill Gates buying all the land. And I, I don't know. I think that's very scary. He's also very scary because he's very unassuming. He only comes out of his, you know, he only comes out of his cocoon every once in a while. Uh, people like, I mean, Bezos is absolutely terrible. And of course, all Musk is oh. what he is. But these guys, you know, when they're in the spotlight constantly, um, I, I just see them as the ultimate narcissist of society, that their whole goal is basically to just own as much of the Monopoly game board as they possibly yeah. can. Yeah, well, those are the land people. Those are your landowners. Those Where are your land as somebody like Gates is exceptionally more nefarious as far as I can tell. And the yeah, fact well, I mean, that, there's a lot of similarities between intellectual property and real property. So, I mean, yeah. they're both... They're both government granted privileges. So you either get you get title to a land from the government or you get a patent or a copyright from the government. And that allows you to monopolize a certain resource. And so the, the gain you're getting is that monopoly rent that's coming. It's not something productive that you're doing. It's just the fact that you're able to corner this, you know, this this part of the market. Well, I think the more people that will wake up the working class, because it sure as hell ain't the middle class anymore, but if we have a working class uprising in this country of real economic knowledge like land value tax, that's going to be the way that we fight back against the corporate oligarchic monolith that we deal with today. And the fact that you yeah. gentlemen have decided to come on and grace our small but mighty show We're this small evening. small but mighty, that's we what fight, I say. We fight very hard. <laughs> and I'm sure that Mr. Grumbine will be very appreciative and will obviously appreciate all this uh, important knowledge and a clip will be coming as well. Rich, Josh, if there's anything- Like this is something I never thought of. Well, Never yeah. even thought of this before. Because you know, you're right. It's sexy. It's definitely <laughs> sexy. If people want more information, you can go to commongroundusa-net, and we have a lot of information on there. You can become a member on the page. So um, that's a good place to start if you want more information. Commongroundusa.net, you said? Dash net. Dash net. Dash net. Interesting. Yeah. And wow. Josh, do you want to plug your website? Yeah, I'll plug it and promote it. Uh, it's called urbantools.org, and that's kind of a play on play on words. And uh, we're working with uh, the Center for Property Tax Reform and the Schockenbach Foundation to get this information out there. Uh, we're doing a little work right now of Jackson, Mississippi, who don't have any water to drink. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, too bad. You know, yeah, exactly. we Thank you for playing. Game over. Move on. That's how it's it, it, really. Yeah, it's, it's taking what everybody should have. The rain falls. Everybody should have water to drink. We have the technology to make the water safe. But as long as, in, in the case of Jackson, the money moves out and the uh, upper classes move out, 
you leave a bunch of poor people who are really blameless in this situation uh, getting blamed. And of course, that helps the, the sort of the racist aspects of a lot of the arguments, too. Oh, they're just casual. Um, Wait, are you talking about like take, using rainwater? Are you talking about rainwater harvesting? Is that what you were no, saying? No, no, no. In the general okay. sense, water is belongs to everybody on the planet. Oh, okay. Because right, right, right. Yeah. Oh, well, well, hold on a minute. I mean, you know, if we bow at the altar of the CEO of Nestle, he would tell you that it isn't, and water is water is definitely not, there because right. a commodity. So yeah, I mean, listen, I've been seeing uh, the evolu- the, the, the complete disintegration of our current oligarchic capitalist system has been happening all the time because, again, there's no counterbalance. The best years that we've had from the dawning of FDR's New Deal to what I consider to be the inflection point, which was JFK's assassination, there was a time period where our history was on the right trajectory. And then slowly but surely it was dying a slow death. And then Reagan and ultimately Clinton took it to such an accelerated point that it's sped up and now everyone is looking at it like, how the hell did we get here? But it's painfully obvious how we did. Oh. And so- the I only- feel like we're living in the Biff Tannen alternate universe and back to the future. Like I, I, sometimes I really do feel like we need to go back to where that timeline skewed and fix something. And you totally know who Biff was based on? Yes. It was based on me. Oh, really I know. great, <laughs> totally based on me. And it was totally a compliment, not a derogatory. Sure. Totally not. So in a way, that's how, well, that's how we get to, uh, you know, again, uh, and the scary part is that while we do have a lot of people who have recognized that Trump is just a, a manifestation of everything that's led us to this point, the scary part is that when you think about Philadelphia, Central Jersey, the, the, some of the biggest upper middle class liberal bastions of the United States, their attitude is, we just have to sweep Trump under the rug. It was just a mistake. It's not. It, it <laughs> was Yeah, just all blue just wasn't blue. meant to happen. That was that Bygons. was a, a mistake. But no, actually, it's yeah. the warning. It's the warning shot of all warning shots. If if we were living in a country where there wasn't this massive income inequality that rivals the Gilded Age, if we had a planet that wasn't on fire, if we had universal health care, a living wage. A person like Trump would never sniff the White House, much less actually get there. How desperate are we? We're pretty desperate. Never get close. And uh, Trump, how did he make his money? On government subsidies, tax abatements, other people's money in banks, and owning land. He has one. I was thinking snake oil. Well, he has one true skill. (laughs) He is a master marketeer. Yeah. That's it. What does he sell? Himself. Yeah. He doesn't act. He doesn't sell anything tangible. No, he just totally say if you put Trump in front of it. I oh. can remember. He's so cool. Josh. I'm from New Jersey, so you may have heard this ad, but I remember when Trump University was a thing. And I can remember when I would drive to. This was senior year of high school, so I remember driving to school listening to these ads because I would listen to WFAN because I'm a sports guy. But the ad that would play was about. You know, enrolling at Trump University and he comes. I can't, This is the commercial. He's like, you're going to learn how to be successful. You're going to learn how to make money. And once you enjoy it, you're going to be successful. And I'm like, what the hell did he just say? But, but, but yet he, as a president, it, it doesn't sound any different than the other platitude sandwiches we get from every other more well-spoken politician. He actually says the quiet stuff out loud, which I, at certain points, of, I told when he said, we're in Syria because we got to guard the oil. 
when he mm-hmm. said that, I actually turned to my TV and said, thank you for your fine candor, sir. Like, thank <laughs> you for saying that. I mean, he's disgusting. But I mean, really, what's we've the gotten, difference? We've gotten to the point where <laughs> as disgusting as Trump is, the people who inhabit Washington, D.C. are that much more hated around the country. <laughs> so to say that we are in a very bad place right now as a nation would be an understatement. But the information that you two gentlemen have provided this evening is invaluable as far as I'm concerned. And I think that the more people that watch spread the word, make sure that you also go to these two very important websites, commongroundusa-net and urbantools.org to get your fill on land value tax and all kinds of economic building blocks that can make you much more of that. This is the kind of stuff where it's like coming at everything from every angle possible. It's doing everything we can to mobilize and get stuff done around, going around the blocks. Rich, I'm going to have to ask you to pronounce your last name before you go correctly. Because I know there's no way I got it. It's it's, it's Nymon. Rhymes with Nymon. Okay, got it. Good. Rich Nymon. It's a name up here in Minnesota. Well, we got oh. thanks so much for having us on. It's really fantastic. Yeah, it was an honor. And thank you, Norman, Thank you for what you do. Keep doing it. Hopefully, we'll be catching up with you down the road. All right, Terrific. sounds good. Take care. Have Bye. a good night, gentlemen. Bye-bye. 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 You know, if you're in Minnesota, then you have a possibility of having Ilhan Omar as your representative. That's true, Minnesota. Minnesota. So, but and also in Minneapolis, there is a very huge um, Somali uh, immigrant population. Oh, there. that's why Ilhan is in Congress. <laughs> yeah, but they because Minnesota was a state that opened up their doors and put out a welcome for people that were fleeing and were coming from um, refugee places, places where people needed to get out. And Minnesota was one of the states that was very open and welcoming and helpful. Minnesota is actually one of the true, if you're talking, if you want the, if you want the combination of progressivism and libertarianism, a libertarian progressive state is Minnesota through and through. Paul Wellstone was Minnesota. It's the only state that saw through Ronald Reagan in 1984. Not of course that, uh, you know, Walter Mondale was in good. No, he wasn't. but if any of but, you younger people don't know, just look up Paul Wellstone. It was so sad. Jesse, the body Ventura. Yeah, exactly. Made him the governor and he was an independent governor. So that state really knows their stuff. It's That's got it. Got to give him credit. Yeah. So I've, I don't think I've ever been other than the airport. I haven't either, but my good friend, Jocelyn and Bill, they are currently in Minnesota. Actually, they made a trip that you're probably not too thrilled about, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, They managed to make the drive out to Mount Rushmore. And Mm. so they are leaving Mount Rushmore, heading to Minneapolis, St. Paul, and they are going to the Lions-Vikings game on Sunday. Yeah, I don't care about that one or the other, but I would like to say going forward, I don't refer to that as Mount Rushmore. It is Six Grandfathers because that was the name of it before we stole it and carved our president's faces in it. Yeah, the circumstances surrounding Mount Rushmore is not. <laughs> it's, it's not really bad not enough. It's to actually steal somebody's no, land, but was, to carve your face in it so they have to look at it. For well, they, well, the whole the whole concept behind Mount Rushmore and the reason it was done there is basically to piss on the Native Americans. Like that was the whole idea. And if you look up and look Google what it looked like before we carved it, it looks like six. They called it the six grandfathers in I forget which language. Is it like Lakota? I don't know. But anyway, th- it looks like six heads like like i think so 
Yeah. Well, Dances with Wolves, I think, alludes to. Uh, well, they don't talk about. Well, yeah, but I'm not sure about the. I, there's so many different tribes and subtribes, and I don't want to offend. But the point is, I call Are you it. Being six, overwoke right now. I'm not. I find it incredibly disgusting. It, look, when I know better, I do better. And the fact that it wasn't bad enough to steal it, but we had to carve our president's faces onto as a, their as a, land. As a, as a white cis female. <laughs> no, it is six grandfathers. And, you know, quite honestly, I used to want to go there. And now I have mixed feelings on wanting to go there. I mean, it just, it's I'm going to go so there eventually because right I, I want to go to Yellowstone and I want to be able to. You realize those are not, well, they're not in the same place. Trust. No, I know. <laughs> yes, obviously. No, well, I was in South Dakota. Yes, I know. Okay. And, and Yellowstone is in Wyoming. So and Montana. That's true. Uh, the drive is about eight hours. Because if you watch Yellowstone, you know that the distance between what they call when they get rid of the people, when they have to get rid of somebody, they say they're taking them to the train station and there is no train. There is no station. It's literally they drive across the border into Wyoming and throw bodies over a cliff. Apparently, and I don't know if this is based on any truth whatsoever, this is a county. Well, no, just listen to what I'm saying. This is a county that has no population. And so because there's no population, there's no sheriff. And so this is a place where apparently a lot of bodies get thrown. Now, I don't know if somewhere exists a place because there is no population, no sheriff, that maybe that is a free for all kind of situation. You're going based off of a TV show. Well, I'm saying I don't know if that's if there ever is such a thing where there is a county well, that Wyoming, doesn't have a municipality or no sheriff. Yeah, well, Wyoming of all states is probably one that's most likely it has the smallest population. Well, that's what I'm saying. So for all I know, that so. actually is a thing where if there's no population and they don't pay for a sheriff, then there's nobody monitoring it. I'm well, just, just saying like, that could be well, real thing. Well, as a play on words, Wyoming sounds very much like wide open. It's the exactly only state right. we did not get a donation from when we ran in 20. We'll fix that. I really think it's a Dick Cheney we'll thing. Fa- we'll, we'll, no, we'll make, I think Dick Cheney we'll make sure Liz me. Cheney gives you a donation because Liz Cheney's all you know, progressive now and Democrat. And uh, you know she's on Team Blue and she's going to run for president and she's going to do really well. She should be in prison. Sins of the father. <laughs> Just by that alone, like it's in her blood. Just how many heart transplants has Dick Cheney? Been he's doing? immortal. He's up there with Mitch McConnell in the immortal universe. You know, I can remember like two years ago when the Lincoln Project did a post celebrating Dick Cheney because he wore a mask in a public space. They were celebrating him because he didn't support Trump. Welcome to the resi- welcome to the resistance, Dick Cheney. And I'm thinking at that point, that is the end. That is the end. There is the grift. It's right there in front of your if face. If you can rehabilitate these people. Well, I'm fascinated on a daily basis with who they How Steve Schmidt and Rich Wilson get anybody's money is unbelievable. But you're gullible suckers if you're giving it to the Lincoln Project. I'm sorry. Any of these organizations, because remember, their intention is never, ever, ever to solve the problems of our country. Now, we, on the other hand, are trying to solve the problems of our country. And therefore, if you want to send your money somewhere, you could send it to us. (laughs) Because we're very important people. And for as little as $5 a month, you can make us feel more important than we already feel. No, you can help us transform politics into service. All the money that comes in goes to helping uh, non-corporate and, and or non-partisan candidates and also goes to serving the community. We do homeless care packages. We support mobile school pantry. Um, I don't know. Whatever good things come up that people need help. We supported the community garden at Hallandale High. Uh, just different things where we can help in our community and that's where the money goes. So it's better spent here than 
you know. And if you are so inclined to contribute, but do not want to become a patron for as little as $5 a month, we'd really appreciate it. You could go to Cash App, dollar sign Gen Change, and make a contribution one time. We'll ask you again. Yes. But we're only asking today. So. And none of that money goes towards my cannabis. I'm just saying. Like, I feel like I don't want anybody to Actually, here if you did say that. it went towards your cannabis, they would probably be like, all right. I would never do that. That's not cool. Well. Um, cannabis is is personal, personal thing, not a work expense. But anyway, so. The other thing we are now having is something called um, small business sponsors, which I'm calling small business neighbors. And this is why, because if anybody is a patron, anybody who is a patron knows we have our categories and, you know, now we have a new category and it's Mr. Rogers. And it's a special one. It's $50 a month. $50 a month. Gets you a plug every show. And any questions that you may have, we're happy to answer and also direct you accordingly to the company. So our first official small business sponsor or small business I'm calling neighbor, them neighbors because it's Mr. Rogers. Apex Insurance Agency, Holman Auto, as well as Life. And they are located right down here in Delray Beach, Florida, small business. Anytime you can avoid going with any of the big box organizations. Seriously. Go local. Support local. And they'll work harder for you and to to have your business and to find you you decent deals. You know what? When you get hurt and have to miss work, it won't hurt to miss work. And you know what commercial that's from. But the difference here, of course, is that they're going to actually pick up the phone when you call and they're going to help you. It's true. I mean, and this isn't my agent. I This isn't the person I use, but we do use. I use a local place and it is better. Like I I do like using a small local place. If you would like to become a small business sponsor, neighbor neighbor of the show. Sorry. Mr. Rogers. It is. It is. But of course, this would be very, very helpful in what we would ultimately like to do, which is have more small business sponsors. We will never have the same small business line of work. Correct. Sponsored by more than one organization. Right. We won't take like, yeah, whatever you're or anything. like. No, 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 no. We do not currently know what our Monday show is going to be, but we do know some guests that are lining up to come on. The and show. can I say that if your small business happens to be like, let's say, I don't know, a taco truck. Ooh, and, I like that. Uh, okay. And then I might even consider doing a live at the taco truck. Ooh, I'm just saying. So if there's a taco truck sponsor out there that wants to get involved, Lobster please. Lobster roll taco truck. You see, that's one that we would plug, especially with the local people that would be watching. Is that lobster roll that we had that one time? Ouch. Expensive though. That's the only problem with lobster. Okay, I uh, yeah. And after spending the amount of time I did in Maine, I'm like spoiled a little bit with the lobster roll. That lobster roll. Yeah, I really want one right now. I think it's because I'm hungry. Not hungry, hungry. but I'm hungry. Yes. Well, whatever. What do we have coming up? We don't have anything on the schedule as of right now. But Uh we're going to change that. Uh oh. Uh oh. Figure something out. Uh, we do have something on the schedule, October 15th, Saturday afternoon. Okay, so your book, you are picking that day then, right? Well, I thought that's what you said. What I said is that I want it to be dependent on if we are not the guests that I want to get, the main, well, the main person I want to get. I already sent an email out. I haven't heard back yet. I'm going to probably have to maneuver a little further to see where I can go with yeah, it. Yeah, we're, we're working on getting some people. But guys, yeah, I am going to be doing um, a special Deconstructing Zionism show. And it's going to include four panels and various guests that are knowledgeable on this. And it is not going to be a debate. It's not, this isn't some sort of like, you know, partisan hackery or any sort of debate. This is just information that is a Jewish person that has taken me so many years to sort of deprogram. This is the information that I want people to have. 
um, to make a choice and make, you know, um, make their opinion be based on facts. So if I tell you, okay, that's fine, we can disagree, but we have to at least be basing it on the same set of facts. And so that's what I'm going to be doing. Fairly warned. All righty. I think we've had uh, quite the show, quite an informative show. A lot was discussed, uh, importance regarding the environment. I think both Michael and Ryan made some really good points. And obviously the information that, uh, you know, Rich and Josh had provided us regarding land value tax is very important too. So we try to be as informative, try to keep it. Yeah, I know. It wasn't that sexy, but we'll keep it interesting. And hopefully the next show will be more fun. So hope you guys liked it, enjoyed it, spread the word, share, like, and subscribe, do all that wonderful stuff that helps this show grow slowly, but surely. And We'll see what happens. But in the meantime, thanks for everything. We'll see you next month. Next, uh, we'll see you Monday. <laughs> thanks for watching. If you want to support our mission to transform politics into service, please like this video, subscribe, follow us on social media, and consider joining our Patreon, where you'll get early access to our interviews as well as other exclusive content. Links are in the description. Peace out.